This week on Thinking Biblically, we welcome back Jojo Ruba, who's going to help us understand some of the implications of the overturning of Roe v. Wade that happened last Friday. Welcome to Thinking Biblically. My name is Alan Gilman. Thinking Biblically is a podcast dedicated to exploring how all Scripture speaks to all of life. Before I introduce this week's guest, if you haven't done so already, please subscribe and click the notification bell. Also, be sure to comment and share. If You can always contact me directly at comments at thinkingbiblically.org. Now, last Friday, June 24th, as expected, the Supreme Court of the United States overturned Roe v. Wade, the landmark ruling from 1973 that that had effectively made abortion legal in all 50 states. Understandably, people's reactions have spanned the emotional spectrum, not only in the U.S., but around the world, including here in Canada. To help us understand all this, I welcome back to Thinking Biblically, Jojo Ruba. Jojo is the co-founder of the Canadian Centre of Bioethical Reform, Canada's premier pro-life apologetics organization. And he's going to explain a little bit about that in a moment. He graduated from Carleton University here in Ottawa with an undergrad in journalism and an MA in political science. Uh, While doing his MA, his master's thesis was on the political history of the abortion debate in North America. This well equips him to help us unpack this highly explosive issue. Welcome back to Thinking Biblically, Jojo. Hey, Alan, thanks for having me. I'm sorry about the background. I'm I'm on vacation, actually, but I'm so glad that we're talking about this topic and so glad talking about it with you. Yeah, and I'm so glad that you're willing to do this on on vacation um in our little chat beforehand we had a little bit of hiccups internet wise and so we're just going to plow through and trust that uh uh the lord is going to see us through as we do talk about this important issue so before we get into the issue at hand uh jojo why don't you explain a little bit about what the canadian center of bioethical reform that you helped to start uh, is, is all about well, yes, a CCBR was an organization I started with Stephanie Gray, a pro-life apologist now in the U.S. and a few others, a Canadian ministry. We, uh, we wanted to truly focus on secular pro-life apologetics arguments, which means giving a rational defense for the pro-life view that secular, non-religious people can understand and accept. And so we we believe, I believe strongly, that it's still the premier apologetics ministry in Canada because the arguments that we had brought in uh, to train Canadians uh, is now being virtually used by every pro-life organization in Canada. That's how effective the training was. So full disclosure, my daughter Devorah uh, worked for many years with with CCBR, and and uh, besides you being on the podcast, we've met before, and uh, uh, I'm I've always been very impressed with CCBR's uh, ability to engage people on on this issue, and and uh, I think as we get into this, we're going to see that a, a lot of of the the legal. Um, things that have been done with regard to abortion haven't really been about abortion uh, and that a lot of people don't really understand the issues that uh, no. with regard to the preborn and you know I may we'll get into that but what why don't we why don't we take a look at this at Roe v Wade um, mm-hmm. and uh, we want to look at you know what what happened on Friday what does it mean what does it not mean as well but why don't we start and go back 
1973 and uh, the Roe v. Wade decision. And can you explain to everyone what was that all about? Actually, can I, if I could just tie in, Alan, I think this is important. About 25 years ago, uh, just before we started CCBR, the founder of CBR, Greg Cunningham, and my friend and mentor, Scott Klusendorf, brought in this apologetics, this intellectual intellectually sound secular case for the pro-life view and brought it into the pro-life movements. And I think this is at this Roe versus Wade uh, fall actually is a culmination of how they use their apologetics work to convince a whole bunch of people, mostly pro-life Christians, to become active in the pro-life movement. And those are the people who've now brought in the fall of Roe versus Wade. So it's actually tied in and how apologetics is so foundational to making sure we get the legal, moral, and even uh, service arms of the pro-life movement done properly. So to the credit of those people, Greg Cunningham and Scott Klusendorf, this is, this is their long-awaited fruit for their work. And, and I think in terms of, of 1973, that's the same thing that had happened. Abortion advocates have been long fighting for a legalized abortion prior to 1973. States like New York already liberalized their abortion laws prior to that, I think within five or 10 years before. So there was a hodgepodge of laws, state laws, just like what's going to happen now after Roe versus Wade, where some states will have restrictive laws protecting pro-life uh, children and unborn unborn children, and we'll have other laws that allow for abortion on demand. And so that's what's gonna, what's going to happen. So this, this hodgepodge of laws is what the US Supreme Court in 1973 was trying to address uh, with this case from a woman named Norma McCorvey from, from Texas. And she and another woman had brought their abortion uh, case to, this, to the courts Neither of them actually ended up having an abortion, but the case, because the case went so long, but the case affected the abortion policies, abortion legal standing. So in this case, the, the argument was from the 14th Amendment in the U.S. Constitution, there was a right to privacy uh, that protected a woman's right to have an abortion because she was doing it through the privacy of her own decision or her own body. So that's what the courts ruled. And Roe versus Wade, the courts uh, cited, uh, the Supreme Court cited seven to two to say this right existed in the Constitution. The, uh, there was a companion case, however, called Doe versus Bolton that people don't seem to remember. Roe versus Wade allowed for legalized abortion. Doe versus Bolton actually expanded that legalized abortion to any time during pregnancy for health reasons. And health could be interpreted to include anything from life being a woman's life being in danger if she continued the pregnancy or a woman getting a headache and getting traumatized because she was pregnant so that whole gamut basically meant abortion was legal on demand roe versus wade allowed for abortion up to 24 weeks but then had more strict regulation so these two cases allowed for these abortions now what happened in the 1990s there was a casey case in pennsylvania and this Casey case allowed uh, the Supreme Court uh, said that there can be some restrictions on abortion and more protections for the preborn child. But it was pretty vague about where that was. And so that's why these cases kept coming up. And in this case, the Dobbs case in Mississippi, the uh, Mississippi law allows for abortion only before the 15th week of the child's life. And after that, it's severely limited to things like when the mother's life is in danger. So when the Supreme Court ruled that this, uh, that the Roe versus Wade decision was wrongly decided because there is no constitutional right to an abortion, 
which again, abortion is never mentioned in the, the uh, U.S. Uh, the law, the U.S. Constitution. Uh, it now goes back to the states for the local in states and governments to decide for each state whether or not preborn children will be protected under the law. So let, let let's let me try to get my bearings, maybe help uh, our our viewers, listeners a, as well. So the original Roe v. Wade case um, was actually, a, if if I understand correctly, they used privacy laws to try to create some sort of legal precedent to establish a legal right to abortion. Yes, even though the decision was not really based on a legal right to abortion. Yes. So are, right. um, are were there people that were looking for some sort of case to take to the Supreme Court so that abortion could be legal throughout the whole? Yes. Okay. And they and they found this in in this idea of, of, of privacy, that a woman had a right to privacy, that she had a medical, medical concern, um, that was between her and her doctor, and the state had no right to interfere in her decision. I've got that right. Right. Yeah. No. The state would have no right to, uh, but the state would have no right to interfere broadly. However, the state could allow for things like publicly funded abortions. So the state could allow and protect that right by forcing us to pay for those abortions as well. So in terms of fundamental right, the, the abortion advocates really truly wanted abortion to be treated like the right to vote. Okay. With, with not any kind of regulation, any legal reg regulation at all. But that and, never and happened. I, I don't think that's, but that never happened, right? In, in terms of abortion on demand? Yeah, well, places like New York and California, it is publicly funded. At least some of the abortions are subsidized, just like it is in Canada. But there's no, there of, was no, all through all, all of this, there was never a federal right to abortion in the United States. That was the argument that Blackman and the other Supreme Court justices who ruled on the Roe versus Wade decision, that there is a right under privacy rules, under privacy rights in the Constitution. Oh, okay, okay. And then as with these other uh, cases, it, it extended some of the things that were established in Roe. Right. So uh, there were other Supreme Court cases where it re reaffirmed Roe, but there was also a case called the Casey decision. Was Casey was the attorney general, a pro-life Democrat from Pennsylvania, who won a case that allowed for some restrictions, some fetal protections. However, it was vague on where those fetal protections would lie. Part of the reason why the this Roe versus Wade decision was so egregious from many people's point now is because they didn't rely on biology and science. What they did was they said it's up to each woman basically to decide if their fetus is valuable based on viability. And the challenge with that is viability is not actually a medical term. Viability is a technological term. So a child in, in, in Southern Sudan, a baby in Southern Sudan may not have the same viability uh, as the child in uh, you know South Africa or a child in Saskatchewan because of technology. So viability, for example, for children has can continued to become uh, much more accessible uh, at a younger and younger age. So now the youngest child that was born 
how was that? I think 1920 weeks old. And they were still viable. They were born without any disabilities. They were, they were actually fine because of the technology in North America that allowed that child to survive. And so that, that was the line the Supreme Court justices were trying to run a biological line. That's a technological line. And it's been being pushed back. So part of the Roe versus Wade decision, a reversal, is to point out that this, this viability line is problematic because we can't just make that kind of rule that's arbitrary. And not only that, there is no privacy right to abortion in the Constitution. As we say, as in pro-life apologetics, you can't abuse your child just because it's in the privacy of your home that the abuse takes place. So privacy is not an excuse to be able to harm some other person. Has the um, the issue of the the actual rights of the preborn been discussed legally in the United States? You've got the viability thing, but you know you know what I'm getting at. Yeah, in the with as long as it's not in the context of abortion. So many states, I don't have the exact number now, have fetal law protection laws. If, for example, a woman is driving and she gets hit by a drunk driver and the baby dies, that drunk driver then is responsible for killing that child. During the 9-11 uh, disaster, the, the horrible, hor horrible act in New York, uh, several women were pregnant and their all babies, of course, also died and they were counted as victims as well. So depending on the state, the, the, the unborn child, the preborn child does have legal rights as long as not touching abortion. Wow. We could certainly get into there's lots of contradictions uh, fl floating around here. Uh, do you want to comment on on the state of abortion law in Canada? before we look at the overturning of Roe that happened on Friday. Uh, well, this is, the, this is just the heartbreaking thing, right? We have abortion advocates pretending to be the media. Let's just be honest. They're not actually even trying to be professional anymore. And I say that as someone who is professionally trained in journalism because they can't even cover this issue fairly. I saw a BBC reporter complaining about the, the U.S. Supreme Court, talking about how terrible and awful this is. This is, this is not something that shouldn't even be uh, tolerated in Western society kind of thing. And she's not even a commentator. She's not an opinion piece person. She's a, she's a newscast person, Alan. So she's not supposed to be giving opinion. But in this situation, she's complaining about the law, not realizing that the U.K. actually bans abortion after 24 weeks. Something the Doe versus Bolton case, which was taken down by this re reversal, would actually prevent. So her own country's abortion law would not be allowed under the regime that was in place while Roe versus Wade and Doe versus Bolton was was uh, around. Uh, in fact, every European country bans abortion sometime during pregnancy, provides some fetal protections. So this Mississippi case that people are complaining about, 15, the la that prevents abortions after 15 weeks, well, France bans abortion after 12. Germany, I think, is after 10. So actually, all of these European countries have fetal protections in place 
and that would be removed if they were American states. That's how ridiculous this is. And people are losing their minds. Well, healthcare, maternal healthcare, all these other things they're saying is going to blow up in the US. Well, just look to Europe because the similar laws will be are in place. Now, back to Canada, and this is how horrible the situation is, Alan. There's only five countries, I looked them up the other day after this case, that allow for abortion at any time during pregnancy for any reason and it's government subsidized, right? These countries are Vietnam, China, Cuba, North Korea, and Canada. Okay, so that's the state, that's the state of, of of abortion legality in Canada. But it comes down, like we don't have any laws federally for or against abortion correct no, no 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 that's not true because now the government is already saying that there first of all there's there's censorship laws in place in canada against pro-lifers uh, whether they're municipal or provincial or federal uh the the per- provincial governments of ontario quebec and british columbia actually prevent the public from knowing how many abortions are being performed in each of those provinces even though we fund those abortions through our tax tax money. They've actually, uh, they don't allow, or the abortion clinics do not report this. So there was a report about 10 years ago that this province of Quebec was looking to find a late-term abortion performer, a doctor who had performed late-term abortions past 24 weeks. So these are fetuses, children who could be potentially viable. Most of them are killed because of a disease or a disability. And, and we haven't heard anything, a peep from that, from that before. So we don't know the numbers in Canada. That's one of the things. But we also now in Canada, Alan, unfortunately, are not debating abortion. We're now debating whether or not we can have a debate about abortion. And that kind of sensor, sensorious uh, mindset, a worldview, is basically saying you as pro-lifers don't have a right to your opinion in Canada. We can make you fund abortion. We can make you... Uh, perform abortions if you go to medical school, right? We can we can shut down your pro-life organization or club, we'll remove your charitable status. That's the other thing Trudeau wants to do. But what they're planning to do next because of the Roe versus Wade reversal is codify abortion in the law. And the, unfortunately, none of the political parties right now are willing to stand up to have even a simple protection like they do in Germany, France, or other countries around the world. So we're, we're gonna come back to Canada um in a moment uh could we look at the decision that happened last friday and and what does that really mean in the united states in particular so again the the u.s supreme court reversal of roe versus wade means several things the first obviously is now abortion goes back to the u.s states at least four or five laws have what states have called trigger laws which means automatically as soon as this this supreme court decision has been handed down they will pass a, a protection bill for preborn children at a certain time during pregnancy, most of them matching the laws in Europe. So like I said, Mississippi is 15 weeks. Some are fetal heartbeat, which is around, around four or five weeks old. This is the child's that age. So it depends on the state when this is going to pass. All of the states that I've looked at so far always have exemptions for things like rape or incest or when the mother's life is in danger. 
abortion advocates like to say, well, no, there's going to be all kinds of terrible repercussions where women, for example, have an incomplete miscarriage where the child is already dead and the woman isn't allowed to have an abortion. That's a medical procedure that is not an abortion because abortion uh, deals with a living child that you kill for no other reason except for all the socioeconomic reasons. Not only that, pregnancy is not a disease. So abortion itself cannot be a cure for anything. It's not healthcare. So all of the states that have these trigger laws are automatically doing this. There's going to be about half the U.S. states that will eventually have laws in place. The other half are trying to advertise abortion as if there's, they're going to be a, a, a sort of like an underground railway, if I could borrow a term, to get abortions there. Unfortunately, it's a reverse underground railway. Instead of freeing women, they're actually going to be enslaving them and killing their children. Uh, the challenge with that, though, and this is the one thing that's different from 1973, Alan, is now you can actually get over-the-counter abortion pills in some states where these pills would be taken like a contraceptive would actually cause an abortion for a child sometime in the early pregnancy stages. Unfortunately, uh, there are horror stories where these are incomplete. You still have to go through your abortion clinic to finish them. Uh, at the same time, there are stories of women giving birth to a, lot, to a dead child uh, in their toilet, and they see this baby coming out. And they're very small, but they're still fully formed. And these women are traumatized because of that decision. These are the kinds of things that are not going to be explained to many women. What would you say, so, so some things that I heard uh, following the decision is that there were already abortion clinics being closed, people losing their appointments, you know, overnight sort of thing. What would you say to, to a, a woman who was expecting to have an abortion monday morning after the friday decision she's distraught i don't know how it would come about that you'd end up having this conversation but please just play along with me for a moment and so she's distraught that she had um an opportunity an expectation that was now from her perspective she's been robbed of it what would you say to her well, it's interesting you said that there are several studies that have been done uh, in the U.S. and other places like Poland, where abortions have been limited and children, preborn children, have been protected. And what they found is, I think the majority of women, if not the vast majority of women who have been denied abortions, end up actually being glad when they're interviewed after their child is born that they're able to have that child. So this is this is one of those uh, decisions that people uh, think is is traumatic, is horrible at the time, but it's it's just one moment in the person's life. You know, there are about two or three times the number of pro-life, mostly Christian pregnancy centers in the U.S. The kind that uh, Trudeau government is wanting to remove charitable status from in Canada. Uh, these pregnancy centers are there to help women who are going through this. And frankly, we as the church should be the one doing the same thing. We should be the, the first people to help through this trauma. And unfortunately, abortion advocates like to point out or like to argue that we only help women uh, during their pregnancy. And that's, that's definitely not true. I, I know many women uh, and men who've worked in these centers who are helping children. Some of them, they've adopted themselves uh, in, their, in their own families. Uh, well after the woman gives birth. So that is the first thing I would say. It's not over. Your story is not over. Just because you are no longer able to legally kill your child 
it doesn't mean that you are not valuable or that your child is not valuable. There's resources available to you. And I will point out, this is important as well, Alan. When I was in the Philippines a few years ago, I actually met the head of Pro-Life Philippines. It was a Catholic nun. And her organization helps women through crisis pregnancies. They lobby for pro-life laws in the Philippines. They provide aid for women who've already had their children, all the while abortions already illegal there. So the pro-life work doesn't stop just because the law changes. It just changes to make sure we are now available to provide the resources for those women. Uh, frankly, I don't think that in the U.S., the state that it is right now, that any woman who lives anywhere in the U.S. will not be able to access abortion somehow. Abortion advocates are raising millions of dollars to be able to help women travel to get to abortion clinics in other states or mail them abortion pills, which is potentially really dangerous because you actually have to finish the abortion at a surgical location. Uh, and also there are many, many uh, different um, groups who are advocating for the right for those women to keep their child and to actually help them, which we would pray is what they actually choose. What do you say uh, to people who believe that abortion restrictions necessarily lead to harm for women? Well, in terms of restrictions, I'm, I guess the argument goes, should we not have any protections for people to prevent them from being killed because it may harm those who are trying to to kill them right so whether it's uh kidnapping laws or rape laws all of those laws have consequences to those who would want to harm the person who's being legally protected so it, it really goes back to the reality of what is it that abortion kills if abortion kills a human being then there are going to be some consequences to protecting that child, just as there are consequences to protecting any child. The law mandates already that parents, both male and female, mom and dad, have legal obligations for their child. One of them is not to kill their child. And I don't think it's a problem to say it should be really legally hard to kill your child. Yeah, well, as, as you know, probably the the greatest obstacle in explaining why abortion is wrong to people is actually what should be the most obvious thing that we're talking about a pre-born baby um i i've i've personally i've changed my lingo from unborn to pre-born unborn sounds a little zombie-like to me so i use pre-born and I, I think it also emphasizes that all we're talking about is a, a human child at a particular stage of development and because it is a human child it should have as much uh, protection as any other human being and yet still as you know like i don't know if if people are purposely denying this or they sincerely don't understand it but the invisibility of of the preborn seems to continue to um, uh, keep people in, literally in the dark with regard to what this really is. But having said that, you know, it's still the whole thing kind of blows me away. I remember reading years ago an article uh, uh, that somebody was writing that they were upset that certain states uh, demand that a, a woman see um, uh, the ultrasound of her preborn child before going through with an abortion 
because it had such an emotional effect on the mother to see what it was that was growing in her womb. And a part of this should be, and, and no offense to people that are struggling with this issue, it's a no-duh. There is a child there and the child should be, should be uh, protected. Um, before we get into, uh, I would like to hear some of your comments about Canada's reaction and what this means for Canada. But what I wanted to do is, um, so, is I want us to listen to uh, the Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's remarks that he made shortly after the decision. And in this clip, he's standing with the Canadian Foreign Affairs Minister, Melanie Jolie. They were attending the Commonwealth Heads of Government meeting in Kigali, Rwanda. And so let me cue this up. Today's a difficult day. The judgment coming out of the United States is an attack on women's freedom. And quite frankly, it's an attack on everyone's freedoms and rights. Let me be really, really clear. In Canada, we will always defend women's rights to choose and continue to work to expand uh, access to the full range of reproductive and health and services uh, across the country. But today, I think of those generations of women around the world and specifically in the United States who fought so hard to gain rights and continue to fight today to get more and more rights because there's still so much more work to do and are facing this devastating setback. It shows how much standing up and fighting for rights matters every day, that we can't take anything for granted, that we need to continue to stand strong to defend everybody's rights and freedoms in Canada and where we are here internationally, standing up internationally as well, which Canada will do, whether it's uh, fighting for women's rights here in Africa or supporting people fighting for their rights in the United States and elsewhere. An attack on everyone's freedoms and rights. Really? There was uh, something on social media, Alan, that I saw with a pro-abortion person comparing abortion with uh, Poutine. And he said, what would happen if people would prevent you from choosing what kind of French fry or poutine you would be eating? It prevents you from choosing to put gravy or cheese curds on your fries. And, and you have to, we have to realize this is the mindset that these people are in. Not only is this person trivializing the choice of abortion, they're, they're missing fundamentally the issue at stake. What, what I find as a, a journalist by trade is when I, I listen to the media, one of the things I don't hear from them is an explanation of why pro-life activists and half of the U.S. population wanted this decision because they voted for Trump who promised this kind of decision. So it's not just a small minority. This is a large part of the U.S. as well. Why do they have that view? No explanation from any Canadian media that I've read and seen so far has come to, to bear. All they have is the pro-abortion reaction from the Prime Minister and others without any explanation from the pro-life side. Why is it that we want fetal protections? I mean, I, I think it's obvious once we even allow us to have that conversation, why we're pro-life. Now, to the clip, and I'm sorry we have some outdoor background and news uh, sound here. 
but it's not just only ironic, but severely um, sad. The prime minister can stand up and say, we will protect everybody's rights and expand the right to abortion as he's forcing pro-life Canadians to fund abortion. That's very anti-choice because he's telling us we don't have a choice of where what to do with our bodies and what that money goes. We don't have a choice of how our government will be uh, allocating resources to pregnancy centers or not allocating charitable status to them. He's removing that. We don't have a choice of where to stand in front of abortion clinics to pray for, reach out to women who are choosing abortion to give them our side of the story and this biological truth. At the same time, of course, he's denying the right to life of millions of Canadians now throughout history who've been killed through abortion, about 2 million since 1969. So it, it, it is so deceitful for him to talk about rights and then talk about making new rights. Well, rights are not something that, that you can just discover as a new rights. Rights either are rights or they're not. And there is no absolute right to choose. That's something that's really important because yes, you can choose to eat poutine, but you cannot choose to drink and drive. You cannot choose to murder your neighbor. You cannot choose to kick your dog. Right? All of those choices are limited. Why? Because the law is anti-choice when it comes to harmful choices. So the arguments he makes about rights hinge on the idea that somehow the right to choose abortion is absolute. Well, that isn't the case. That's never been the case. That's actually not the law in Canada. We have a legal vacuum. And, and in terms of the Canadian situation, Alan, I think, and I would pray that the, the pro-life leaders in Canada are waking up to realize that over 50 years, since 1969, we've had legal abortion now, and, and since 1988, no restrictions at all. And the political strategies that the pro-life movement in Canada has chosen over that time has been, an, has been a failure. Let's just be honest because we've gone backwards, not moved forwards. And now we have a comparison with the US to see where their strategy has brought them. So we need to have a long and hard conversation with the pro-life leaders in Canada, particularly those of us in the evangelical community who have been very absent in this debate. Let's just be honest to say, why aren't we moving forward like the way they've done in the US? So is could what you're saying right now is this what the prime minister is scared of? Is it possible that he's seeing that this pro-life victory in our big neighbor to the south will have a significant spillover effect in Canada? Is he do you think he's really concerned about that? Uh, I think what he's concerned about is that people like us exist. And as I said, the debate is, is no longer about abortion. It's, it's, it's existential in the sense of we violate his understanding what a good Canada looks like. We violate what the mainstream press, what the elite in Canada think good Canadians look like. So I remember watching a CBC political panel on the issue of abortion representing all of the major political parties. Everyone on the panel was pro-abortion. And the CBC reporter on this panel doing the interview said something to the effect of we need to we as journalists need to be as vigilant so something like this doesn't happen. 
something like what? That pro-lifers would have victories. So that, that's exactly the, the, the heartbreak that the prime minister, it's, it's, actually, it's actually projection, because what they're actually wanting to remove is our fundamental political and democratic rights to participate. When we have a, a, a debate like we had two elections ago, there was a leadership debate and all the political leaders uh, went to Andrew Scheer, the head of the Conservative Party, and basically said, you must be pro-choice in order to be leader or prime minister of Canada, which is what, what the media elite, the political elite in our country are saying, pro-lifers should not be allowed to run for political office. That's the underlying understanding of that worldview. And we as Christians, we as pro-lifers, should really push back on this mindset because it will not just mean that we can't participate in the democratic process, but no one who doesn't agree with them can't. They are so out of touch with reality on this in terms of where we're at, Alan. Uh, there was this Edmonton CB, uh, CTV report reporting that a pro local pro-life member of parliament was celebrating on Twitter Roe versus Wade. That was the whole story. As a journalist, my first question is, why is this a story? He's out publicly as a pro-lifer. Why are you CTV reporting that? Well, they're reporting that as if uh, somehow this member of parliament was hanging out with some KKK people and they would need the public to know about it. That's the kind of mindset these media elite have now, and it's very anti-democratic. It will actually destroy the democratic process in Canada if people cannot disagree with Justin Trudeau on issues like this. Now, would you say, uh, would you agree with me that this is just one of many issues today that whereby more and more uh, we're not having discussions, there really isn't debate, what, whatever the going thing is that the what, whoever the power brokers are, I'm not too sure how to become a power broker, but somehow some people are the power brokers and they determine what is truly Canadian and what is not, what's ex an acceptable view, what is not. Um, and the people who disagree with that somehow accepted view, they're villainized. Well, this is why the prime minister is very, very upset. Remember, he talked about a cascading of, of rights that will be lost because of this. This is partly because Roe versus Wade open up this discussion that we can read into the U.S. Constitution these rights that weren't actually written down there originally. So this includes the right to contraception, the right to same-sex marriage, among other kinds of rights. The Canadian uh, 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 Charter of Rights has a very similar kind of mindset with the current court system in Canada where we can read into the Constitution these rights. So same-sex marriage, uh, transgenderism, uh, gender identity, all of these things, gender fluidity, were read into the Charter of Rights, were not included in the original, which, which means that if this, this Roe versus Wade decision, the fundamental understanding that Alito and the, the conservatives on the court argued was you cannot just add more rights just because you want them. You cannot just add more rights just because you think they're rights. And especially because they're not in the original constitution, right? If you have that mindset, then you cannot add more rights that the prime minister wants to add or is intending to add. So when we had the conversion therapy debate in, in Canada, again, uh, words like 
a, a, a cisgender, words like gender uh, expression are nowhere explained or defined in the law of Canada, but are now read into uh, the law as protected cases. So you cannot discriminate against someone because they express their gender differently than you. Well, what does that even mean? No one knows yet. That's the challenge that, that this Supreme Court decision has now placed on the U.S., but potentially this argument is a powerful one because it should be in Canada that that says liberal politicians cannot simply add uh, rights anytime they want something to be a right. So, so what we're coming down to is that decisions have been made basically on what certain humans wanted whether it was right or wrong, it was basically their version of what they think is good, their version of what they think is right. And of course, the past many decades, uh, the the um, philosophical climate has been one where truth doesn't really exist. You know, everyone has their own truth. And so basically, whoever's in power can assert their will and get whatever they want. Uh, uh, to, to be the, the law of the land. But now we have our, our prime minister actually sounding, certainly if he's not scared, he's concerned that this appeal to actual objective truth is gonna potentially mean the undoing of, of various arbitrary decisions based on human desire. Which is why we're, we're gonna be facing some very anti-democratic laws moving forward. So the liberal government has already promised they're going to try to codify abortion rights in the char in the law so that it can't be changed and they might even be able to add it in the charter just that's where how bad the situation is in Canada now where we are denying fundamental biological facts about gender about sexuality about biology for the preborn right and this this is what just is lost in this this shuffle because as soon as you do this on this issue, all the other issues now become fiat, judicial or prime ministerial fiat, gets to determine who has rights and who doesn't. And by saying that the abortion is a fundamental right, for example, that means we join North Korea and China and Vietnam and Cuba in, in denying bio, biology and protecting uh, fetal uh, rights, protecting preborn children in a way that no one else does because there will be no protections at all. Yeah, and it's, you know, all comes, it all comes down to that in something like this, who suffers the most? It's the most vulnerable. And at some point, even though it's so devastating, people need to stop and really begin to grapple with the implications of their decisions. And it's not just in this issue, it's with so many issues. We become so short-sighted and uh, with, with no uh, offense meant to anyone, but um, we become so selfish. We don't really care about the effects of our actions on other people. So much of what's going on is we wanna do what we wanna do and we really need to stop and and look at at the reality here and you know millions and millions of of children it's like way over 50 million children worldwide i believe have been aborted since whatever date and oh it's actually no it's it's about 43 million to 50 million children are aborted every year 
around oh, the that's, world. Oh, sorry. That, that, yes. Yes. Uh, and it's, it's, just, it's just under a million in the U.S. that we know of, and it's 100,000 in Canada. That's about 300 every day. And these are our children, and we, we should be protecting them, not uh, putting their lives at, thre at threat. Um, well, you know, Alan, I mean, it, it goes back to Scripture. If I could go to that from a Christian perspective. even is thinking from the biblically Old after all. Yeah, that's right. The Judeo-Christian worldview was the, the Jewish people, the Israelites were brought into the Promised Land, partly because of a punishment for the people who were there. And one of their greatest crimes was child sacrifice. And Scripture is very clear, God hates the hands that shed innocent blood. So, look, that's God's word, not mine. And if, if we are truly killing children, then we can't expect that a good God will leave us without judgment. Well, that's a somber but good uh, place to, to stop. We could talk much longer. If anybody wants to contact Jojo, you could do so at board at free to care.ca that's board at free to care.ca i will put that in the description as well you can contact me at comments at thinkingbiblically.org well again special thanks to jojo for taking time on his vacation to uh be with us today um, I think we've only scratched the surface of a very, very important topic and encourage people to keep on uh, looking into this more, uh, be writing your elected representatives, see what you could do, but most of all, encourage each one of us to look at our own heart. Um, and I'm going to put in, in the description as well some other podcasts that uh, touch on this topic. Um, you are so valuable because God has made you in his image, and that is why we should be caring for the littlest among us, the preborn. And so thanks again to Jojo, and, and thank everybody for listening or watching. And so until next time, this is Alan Gilman with Thinking Biblically.